This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. World changed a year ago when the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Fast forward a year later, almost 120 million cases, 2.6 million deaths, including well over a half million here in the U.S. We'll look into how rough of a year it's been, especially for those who have lost loved ones. The COVID vaccine could soon be as a regular thing as the flu shot. Return to classrooms might be extra hard on the teachers. Do you remember the roaring 20s? And Probably not because you weren't born yet, but it was a wild time after the Spanish flu and World War I. Are we going to repeat that decade's debauchery? But are you worried a little bit about going out? You know, socially awkward. It's been so long that you've been inside. How are you going to deal with life back to normal? Let's start with the one-year milestone of the official pandemic. With us is Fiona Garza-Tulip, who lost her mom in July. Her mother was a respiratory therapist who didn't want to retire early and leave her co-workers behind. And Christian Arquiza is the co-founder of Marked by COVID. Her dad died of the illness in June. Fiona, let's start with you. How has your world changed in the past year? It's changed dramatically. Um, Not having my mom around to see my daughter take her first steps, to say her first words, um, to see her laugh and smile and interact uh, with me and and my husband is is heartbreaking. Um, And it feels like every day I look at my daughter and just wish my mom was still here. And even while dealing with the loss of my mom, I've, I've also dealt with the loss of an uncle and, um, and a great aunt. And my father also got COVID and thankfully he survived it, but he's now um, struggling mentally. So I do feel like I've lost both parents in a way. Um, it's been a lot. It's been a year of, of so many challenges and so many frustrations. I'm not as angry as I was. Um, I think I'm finally starting to somewhat grieve. Um, but you know, it's, it's been the hardest year of my life. Kristen, your experience, obviously you've, you've gone and and channeled this into something that this group that you have. Um, that last thing that Fiona said about it being the hardest year of my life, I will, uh, uplift that as well. Um, the only thing that really made sense for me to do, I was so outraged when my dad got sick and then subsequently passed away was to try and find others who felt like me. And that's why, you know, I co-founded Marked by COVID where we've been working with folks across the country to help them share their stories and, uh, find courage to, to speak out about what's happened to them. But when it comes down to day to day, my life is completely transformed. Fiana, uh, also had, yeah, I think others I think, that I've lost too. Yeah, I think we're having a little bit of, of difficulty technically with Kristen. So, so uh, we're going to keep you on and try to clear that up. Uh, in the meantime, Fiana, uh, going forward, I mean, you said, for example, that you're less angry than you were before. Uh, how do you? We know how your life has changed uh, in the past year. How do you think it's going to be different in the years to come for you? 
I think it's always going to be different. You know, it, with the past year being as traumatic as it was, there's a lot to overcome. Um, you know, a lot of us have are suffering from PTSD, from the sudden shock and loss of, of a loved one and not having the ability to have a funeral or a memorial or gather with family or, you know, get hugs. And we, it's just, it's, every single day we're dealing with something and we're having to cope with it. So for the future, you know, something that Kristen and I have been talking about, you know, when we look at Mark by COVID and, and what we want to set out to do, um, we're thinking about the mental health effects that it's having on people. And so I, I want to share what I'm going through mentally um, so that people don't feel embarrassed or ashamed by how they feel because we're gonna have a lot of people walking around who are struggling and who don't know what to do. Kristen, we're gonna get into some of this uh, later in the show as well, but, but on that kind of a note, we're at this weird place right now because there is hope, but we're still dealing with the grief and that's, that's a strange mix to try and conquer. It is. I mean, I'm so grateful that we have vaccines, that we're, um, you know, being able to get them out and increase our distribution and shots into arms. But listen, every single day, still over 1,400 people are dying. We are not only dealing with um, this pandemic, but we're also dealing with a pandemic of grief. And that's not going to start. It's already started. So we need to both deal with the virus head on, but we cannot leave behind the survivors and people who have lost um, dear loved ones who are struggling day to day to get out of bed. So it's a very real issue and something that I think about often in that there will be no normal for tens of thousands, if not millions of people across this country from here on out. Kristen Urquiza, Fiona Garza-Tulip, thanks for coming on and talking to us. Pfizer and Moderna working on and testing vaccine boosters. The goal is to use them to protect against variants and possibly as annual shots to keep the virus under control. Dr. Bertram Jacobs, virologist, member of the Biodesign Institute's Center for Immunotherapy Vaccines at Arizona State University. So, doctor, this is expected, right? Yeah. Uh, it, you know, again, we had hoped that we wouldn't be running into this as quickly as we had. We know that this coronavirus doesn't mutate as rapidly as like flu where we're used to getting a shot every year but variants are coming up and some of them look concerning uh, luckily the california variant probably isn't going to be too too much of a problem the south african and brazil variants uh, are, are maybe problematic but now to be clear when we say problematic uh, are we talking about again, seeing a surge of people dying from COVID, or are we talking about more people perhaps getting symptomatic cases, but not dying and being hospitalized because of the efficacy of the existing vaccines? We don't know the answer to that. What's clear is that, you know, people in Brazil who had already been infected with the earlier coronavirus were susceptible to the new variant and had a whole new wave come through and I believe with deaths and severe illness. We hope that the current vaccines will protect against severe disease. And we have good data for that from the Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson vaccine was actually tested in South Africa 
and people with the vaccine were fully uh, did nobody died who got the vaccine, whereas seven people died who didn't get the vaccine. Yeah. So we know that that vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, works really well in South Africa against death and disease. Yeah, I was going to say, remind us, uh, if you could, after you get a case and you get antibodies of something, you know, through natural right. infection, is the vaccine for that usually better at, at building up your immunity? You know, right now it appears that the vaccine is actually giving a better immune response than natural immunity. And that may have been what happened in Brazil because, again, the reinfection was in people who had been infected with the first coronavirus and then were able to get infected with the variant. We really don't know yet whether the reinfection will be impossible with uh, uh, um, the new variants and the vaccine. I think the worry that we have is that, you know, the longer time from the time we get the vaccine, the more our antibody levels go down, we'll get to a point where we may not be protected and that's where we'll need a booster response. And that's, I think, what Moderna and Pfizer are beginning to test out now. Is it possible Realistically, I suppose anything is possible. But is it possible that the uh, mute, uh, the mutating virus could lead to a situation where you would need to have boosters actually more than once a year? You know, again, I think it's unlikely. Um, you know, I think we, you know, the 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 really bad variants, the Brazil variant, South African variant, are actually fairly similar. So we think that you know. Probably one new vaccine would protect against the two. Um, and uh, again, we're hoping we don't see anything like those two, um, anything new like those two. Dr. Bertram Jacobs, Arizona State University. Doctor, thanks. Students and teachers are starting to return to classrooms in areas where they've been closed for about a year. The adjustment back figures to be rough for some students. What about the teachers? They'll face challenges, too. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Colleen Lelly, professor of education at Cabrini University. She focuses on trauma. I think there's a number of things to remember, but one of them is that we really have suffered through something called a mass, a mass trauma. So it's otherwise known as a collective trauma. It's when um, we, you know, the it takes place the same event uh, or a series of events traumatizes a large group of people, same shared time span. So we really have all been through this mass trauma. So I think that as we go back into the classrooms, uh, we have to remember that we need to implement what we call trauma-informed practices. And so trauma-informed practices are really, in a nutshell, it's, it's a collective strategies that we can use with our students. And I think we also, if, if we're administrators in the buildings, we have to remember that the teachers have also been through this too. So how are we going to implement some best practices to support our teachers and our educators, not just teachers, staff, bus drivers, you know, what are, what are some of the things that we're going to do to support them? So I think that's some of what uh, we need to remember. Um, and I just I created a survey with two colleagues, Kelly Ballard at Bryn Athen and Amber, Dr. Amber Gentili at Cabrini. And we did a survey of over uh, 200 teachers in two um, school districts and found and this was back before this was in the spring. And so what we found was that everyone was definitely struggling. So I can imagine that even more so. 
um, we're going to see a lot of struggles as, as students and teachers make their ways back into the classroom. One of the things that this, to your point, a mass trauma event, this, the pandemic has touched everyone in the world. There's not a person that hasn't been touched. But I think everywhere, specifically in this country, there are wildly uneven I don't want to say outcomes because we're not done with it, but everybody's been affected in way different. Whereas some people have actually found a way to come out in a better spot. They like working from home, been able to save some money. You've got the other end where mm -hmm. you know people have lost their jobs. So anyway, my point is, if you're a teacher with 20 students, you've always got 20 kids in 20 different emotional states. Mm -hmm. But... I would think that spectrum has multiplied by a factor of 10 of what you have to be ready for with all of these kids. How big a challenge are teachers facing here? And I mean, in my head, I'm thinking you're K to six, but let's, you know, throughout high school, K to 12. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, when we think about how trauma itself affects the number of students in your classroom. And now we've had this layered on top of it. I think you're right. I don't know the statistics on that, but I agree with you. I think it's going to be much higher. And so, and to your point, I don't think it matters if the teacher is teaching preschool, if they're teaching kindergarten, if they're teaching high school, because the thing about trauma is it does live in the body. And so um, when I say that it lives within the nervous system, someone who has been affected by trauma, their nervous system is on high a lot of the time, and that's that's actually not a good thing. Your nervous system is meant to work in times of fear, and if you have a nervous system that's on high all the time, you're going to have a child that's not going to be in what we call their learning brain. I do think that teachers are going to have a, a hard road ahead of them. Um, I, I think that I know that the teachers are prepared. I mean, a, a number of them have been taught about trauma. But to what extent, I don't know. And so I think that there's going to be a lot more training that's going to need to be involved for teachers to support the students. One of the things we talk about in our book is we have these guideposts. And so we call them the RMP, and there's four of them. It's relationships and partnerships, routines and predictability, resilience and perseverance, and rest and pause. And basically using those guideposts, those are the trauma-informed practices that teachers can implement in the classroom. So, uh, you know, and I don't want to spend a, a ton of time, but this is what, what I, I believe, we believe is going to be helpful for educators and students. Relationships and partnerships. So relationships, the research has so, shown that the greatest thing that you can do for a child is to build a positive relationship. And so it doesn't matter if it's a teacher, if it's a coach, if it's a parent, but those positive relationships can help overcome adversities. And then the other part of is those partnerships. So there's a number of organizations in the area that will, nonprofit organizations that can support schools and provide trainings. So supporting the administration, supporting the teachers with those partnerships is really important. Routines and predictability. So unfortunately, you know, to your point, some people may have liked being at home, right? And they like the, you know, I can get up when I want, and but the, the routine may not have been as strict as before. I didn't have to get in my car at a certain time. But a lot of students thrive on, children thrive on routines and predictability. So we need to like get that back in if it hasn't been there. And I know that a number of schools, they, Mondays they went in, Tuesdays they were home, Wednesdays was asynchronous. So that caused a lot of routines to be disrupted and unpredictability. 
for parents, for teachers, for students. And then we have resilience and perseverance. So teaching resilience, many, we, we've all been resilient during this time, right? There's a lot of things that we didn't want to do. <laughs> so we've become resilient. And then la lastly, rest and pause, taking time for self-care. And teaching self-care to our students is super important. Teaching them how, what does it mean to take some deep breaths, mindfulness, and those types of skills. So that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot more. But those things are the things that we have to now build back into our routines and back into our practices and make sure that uh, we are, are setting up our students for success. Coming up after this short break, when the pandemic ends, will history repeat itself? The 1920s, prohibition, flappers, dancing, jazz music, good times. It was a roaring decade for the country coming out of the First World War and the Spanish flu. People were just tired of war and sickness. So they partied. And will we do the same? Yasha Monk, political scientist, historian, Johns Hopkins University. So Yasha, you think of this as a similar situation to 100 years ago? It's a little early to know, but that is absolutely my hope. I started thinking about this, you know, nine or 10 months ago when I was seeing all of these arguments by academics, all of these articles and newspapers saying the pandemic is going to change life forever. People will never want to go back to bars, will never want to go back to parties. And I thought, hang on a second. A hundred years ago, we had this terrible pandemic, even scarier in some ways than what we're living through right now. It affected a lot of young people who died from it. Um, young people were more at risk than, than, than older people, um, terrible death toll. And a few years later, we had what we know as the Roaring Twenties. Um, having survived this pandemic made people all the more keen to go out there and connect with other human beings and have a good time. Um, and I think the same may happen over the next months and years. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, fundamentally, uh, people don't change. I mean, we think we change over the, the years, and maybe we do in terms of our technology and stuff like that. But we're basically the same, right? So uh, why would anybody? I never quite understood that thinking that uh, because of this pandemic, people are now going to go about the rest of their lives living in, you know, sort of sheltered existence and forever wearing masks. Look, uh, journalists are in need of writing articles, and the easiest way of writing an article is to look at what's going on around you and say, this is a trend that's going to continue forever. And so if people right now are staying in, perhaps we'll stay in forever. I, I agree with you. It's striking that uh, when you look at parts of a world that unfortunately have much higher levels of infectious disease than we do now, where people run real health risks by going out and connecting with their friends and neighbors, they are nevertheless incredibly social. When you look at uh, the past in our own societies, where diseases that can now very easily be cured of antibiotics might kill you, people nevertheless gathered in large groups. Uh, this is something that humans have always done. Um, it makes perfect sense to be very cautious in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we now know that how deadly it is. Uh, we know that there are simple measures we can take in the short run in order to reduce the risk, uh, but that neither can nor will be the long-term solution. And so I think we will see uh, bars that are as full, restaurants that are as full, clubs as a, that are as full, mass events uh, that are as joyous um, in the next years as we did um, you know, before um, February, March, 2020. Do we just think about it as a potential economic boom or is it a cultural one? Is it a social one? Well, the roaring twenties, I think were a lot of those different things um, until um, uh, Black Friday, the, the economy went very well, but it also, by all accounts, was uh, quite a joyous decade, uh, a decade with a lot of cultural uh, richness, uh, a lot of social changes. 
Um, I don't want to overplay the, the, the parallel. We, you know, there's a lot of other factors going on as well. Um, but I certainly think that uh, when people feel the liberation, when hopefully most Americans very soon will be vaccinated and they can go back out and live their lives freely, I'm sure that'll be good for the economy. I hope it'll also be good for people's souls. Yasha Monk, political scientist, historian, Johns Hopkins University, and the Council on Foreign Relations. The pandemic sparked a host of mental health issues, anxiety, depression, loneliness. It's been a year, and many people who struggled at first are doing much better, but problems remain. So this is the flip side to the go out and party Mm -hmm. segment. Now that the pandemic seems to be coming to an end, hopefully, you've got some anxieties out there about going back to normal. What's it going to be like? Ellen Cushing, special projects editor at The Atlantic, wrote a column on this. So Ellen, you think people will be comfortable getting right back out there? I think we will eventually. Um, I talked to a bunch of neuroscientists and psychologists about this, and we we will eventually snap back. But I think the next few months are going to be really weird. I think we are all a little bit under socialized. We have all uh, spent a very long time in our homes for, for many of us, not all of us. And you know, we are forgetting how to be our old selves. I, I've talked to so many people who have forgotten the names of their close friends, have forgotten how to to tie a tie, don't remember how to dress in in non-spandex uh, clothing. <laughs> you know, um, I talked to someone who um, like has forgot like forgot how to fill um, her car's gas tank because she hasn't done it in a really long time. So I think we're all going to be a little bit. Um, then we're all going to be a little bit confused (laughs) (laughs) when we venture back out into the world. Yeah. So maybe those examples are a bit extreme, but I guess for everybody, and I'm seeing a lot of this on Twitter, right, is, is it's the, and we mentioned strangers earlier, like going and interacting with people that, you know, you haven't really seen, or, you know, you haven't been out that much. And if you were, you were wearing a mask, so it was different anyways, but, you know, we're going to have a lot of kind of social awkwardness once we get back out there if you were predisposed to that which then gives you anxiety because you know you're predisposed to it and you're going to mess something up yeah absolutely i think um many of us have just not done a lot of talking to strangers in the last year you know we haven't had to share space with strangers on a, a subway or a sidewalk or in a bar all of these things are going to feel new to us and I think we're going to be quite awkward. I am I'm anticipating personally being quite awkward. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Ellen, what are you most anxious about? Um, I've been thinking about this. I think commuting. I think commuting is going to be really weird. I live in New York City, and, um, you know, I don't know how to, like, the steps that a person takes to get from my apartment to my office is baffling to me. Like, first you have to put on shoes, which just seems crazy. Yeah, why? I haven't in so long, yeah. <laughs> like, and then beyond that, it's just a big mystery. You know, it's like a big question mark in my mind how you get from point A to point B. <laughs> it's like we're all moving to new cities once we start going outside again. Oh, this is nice. Um, why does it feel weirder now? And I was thinking about this because, you know, it was a couple months ago when we first started getting the vaccines, a lot of people were saying, this is kind of my breaking point. Like I made it this far, but now I'm having real trouble because hope seems close, but I know I'm not there yet because I can't get the shot yet. So it's really, it's really wearing on me. And then now, like you said, we're getting even closer, but 
it's almost like when we would talk about the before times, before it was kind of this joke, like, haha, the before times, it was a few months ago, but now it's been a year. So it's a whole different kind of perspective. Yeah, and, and the scientists, the brain scientists that I spoke to talked about how we are all living under cognitive stress, even if you don't realize it, like we're all walking around with some cognitive stress. And that's because the things that your brain likes are novelty and exercise. By novelty, I mean serendipitous occasions and meeting new people and seeing new things. We're not getting any of that. Many of us are not exercising. Um, and we're under the just sort of constant IV drip of trauma that is what happens when you are alive on a planet experiencing a global pandemic. And so, you know, all of this stuff is cumulative. So you may have felt fine earlier on in the pandemic, but now you've been doing it for a year and it's just adding up. What happens when you have, uh, you know, you're talking about friends, right? So you have a group of friends and everybody's anxiety level is going to be different, right? So what do you do when, you know, maybe you're comfortable going out in a group to, say, a movie theater, uh, but somebody else who is a close friend of yours, if you can remember their name, of course, uh, is, is not... Is, Scroll is, through the old texts yeah. to see who you knew. <laughs> but maybe the, even they're, even if they've been vaccinated, maybe they're still you know, kind of gun shy about doing that. How is that going to happen in terms of interacting with friends, not all of whom are going to be on the same page? I mean, the good news is that many of us have spent the last year navigating that already. You know, after spring, when things started opening up and it was okay to do, you know, outdoor dining or maybe go to a park with some friends, we were all, we all became quickly very used to navigating our loved ones varying um, levels of comfort with risk. And I think we're going to need to do that for a lot longer than we think. You know, getting the vaccine is not flipping a switch. People are going to have different levels of comfort with different levels of activity for the next several months or years. And, and we're just going to need to do what we hopefully have been doing, which is be understanding and be kind and um, be flexible. You know what I was thinking about? I was telling Charles, I was telling you this over the break that is is says everything about how weird this is there's a couple people here that we've hired during the pandemic i don't know what they look like <laughs> totally because i've never seen them without a mask because they have half a face yes this yeah. whole time which is very very strange it's been months <laughs> it's so weird i i also have a lot of new colleagues and i see their their bottom faces because i talk to them on zoom all the time but I don't know what, like, below the neck. You know, I don't know how they dress. I don't know how tall they are. I don't know what their body language is like. It's so weird. It's going to be so weird. I, I actually wonder what little children are going to think, you know, ones who are old enough that, you know, they're kind of aware of stuff going on. And for the past year, they've been seeing only people around them outside their home anyway with masks and all of a sudden in a year or so they're going to be there's a whole world out <laughs> there's there like a whole world of people unmasked people have mouths <laughs> the bottom face that was perfect on youtube top face bottom, bottom face. face ellen cushing a special projects editor at the atlantic go and read the, the column a late stage pandemic messing with your brain a movie theater chain may have figured out how to keep the entire industry alive during and after the pandemic Popcorn, 
It's now testing popcorn delivery in Belgium. The CEO of the company says it started the deliveries after a customer in Canada's Yukon Territory walked in and asked the manager if she could buy popcorn without a ticket. He says rather than seeing themselves in direct competition with streaming platforms such as Netflix, movie theaters should focus on improving the quality of their selection of massive offerings. He says they need to become the sommelier of the movie. I do miss movie popcorn. That's one yes. of the things on my list. Yeah. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.